0: There uh, was a project that we set up called Project Kaboom. Literally, that was the name of the project, right? And um, the idea here is that we wanted to blow up the terms and conditions for NAB credit cards and try and create something that's going to be of value to customers, that the bankers can explain, um, that our teams understand. Our guest today is Madeline Oldfield.
1: Over 20 years, Madeline's career path has taken her from IT to management consulting, digital transformation, to a JD Law degree, and now, in a way, back to where it all began.
2: Madeline is now at Google, where she heads up partnerships for Google Chrome browser, web platform and privacy sandbox across Australia and New Zealand. She's worked with some major Australian businesses, government organisations and not-for-profits. We can't name many of them for confidentiality reasons, but we can say that there are some of our major banks, telcos and plenty more among them.
1: Today, we're going to hear some of Madeline's stories from years at the forefront of getting organisations to rethink the way they think. I'm Isabel Mallis-Tabiner.
2: I'm James Patterson. This is Life After Law School.
1: So I've mentioned some of the positions you hold, but I want to start by asking how would you describe what you
0: do and who you are? Thank you, Isabel. Um, now, as many of us will probably know, we get asked this question quite often in interviews. And if you see with my career uh, jumps, I've probably had had my fair share. So I usually tell people I'm a bit of a cross between Mary Poppins and MacGyver, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> That's a, I know right you can imagine you yeah. can imagine and so the Mary Poppins bit of what I do in my career is kind of you know look after the old problem child whether it's a difficult stakeholder or um, you know a challenging kind of problem to to solve for and then the MacGyver bit is I often get called in to help with remediation so people often hand me a stick of gum and a paper clip and you know expect something pretty amazing so um, you know colloquially that's I guess what I do the but you know the title itself, being um, head of partnerships for um, privacy, Chrome and Web in Australia, and also looking after the privacy sandboxes. My current adventure that I'm working on at Google, awesome.
1: Um, your path to law is a bit different from some of our previous guests. Mm-hmm. So you had a career for around 15 years before you came to law. What brought
0: you? to law school. Oh my gosh, this is this is hilarious. So <laughs> my the official start was when um, I wanted to study law when I left high school, but my parents somehow managed to get in my head and say, no one wants to be a lawyer. What you want to do is study IT. And I always wanted to do business, so I ended up, for whatever reason, for the first time probably in my life at 18, listening to my parents and uh, doing a, a, a business and an IT undergrad. Um, and then I finished and I always had that pang of regret and I'd thought about it And I was working at the time with Department of Justice and we got some exorbitant bills from the lawyers, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. And I was just, uh, again, working on sort of major procurement and contracting projects. And I thought to myself as the sort of program manager, there's got to be a cheaper, better way to do this. So I somehow managed to write the business case to the powers that be um, to sort of encourage them to fund, you know, some of my law degree. And that's basically how I started, kind of. Frustration at getting a legal bill, and just doggone yeah. kind of stubbornness of if it's you know if they can do it I can do it, and that's what started me on the path.
2: There's nothing right. like so we boil it down, and it was spite. <laughs>
0: Pretty <laughs> much, <There's>, yeah, spite <laughs> is a powerful force <laughs> and I mean really a really good changes. motivator. <laughs> like that kept me going for a good eighteen months. Every time I got that bill, I tell you, and then and then it wore off, and, and then it wore off because and and my role changed, mm-hmm. and then I started to think actually some of this content. Is really helpful. All of a sudden, by telling people I was studying this law degree, folks were interested. You know, I was working. Then I moved on to working at one of the banks, and they were rolling out a major regulation project around anti-money laundering, um, customer due diligence, or AML CDD compliance. And all of a sudden, I had this law degree where I could do statutory interpretation. Mm. Not well. Let's be honest about that part of my skill set, but well enough that I could actually read through the legislation. Uh, I think I was also studying trust law at the time and I kind of identify this pretty big gap in how we were thinking about things. Um, And I was as surprised as anybody because I didn't think anything in trust law would stick, but lo and behold, it does. And so, yeah, managed to rethink kind of what that would mean in the context of a bank and have to explain it to folks who had absolutely no idea what it meant. So, it was kind of my power moment and all of a sudden those little motivators just kept me going about the application of what I was studying in a real-world context and I was like, oh, this is good. This law degree is paying for itself. I liked it. it Amazing." Made. I do love asking our guests. You've named a few subjects in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You
1: know, favourite subjects, favourite lecturers, yep. you yep. know. Yep. Do
0: you have any that you still think about or you still kind oh, of reflect on? Look, if anyone has thought about doing the mediation A, mediation B, to this day, without question, the best thing I did, not just even at law school, but probably in terms of professional development that I've ever done, I'm actually annoyed at myself for not following through and getting my mediation certificate because those negotiation skills, arbitration skills, conflict resolution, Genius, And as someone who isn't always perhaps the calmest in those situations, learning those techniques, honest to goodness is like one of the best things. Mm. In fact, um, I often put it uh, if I'm running a change management program, um, doing leadership development type work and consulting work, I actually put that in as a piece of advice Mm. Um, that leaders actually need to be trained Mm. in in some of those skills. So, yeah, awesome. Uh, And my surprise subject, believe it or not, property law how really loved it really? couldn't stop now I don't know if it's just because secretly I wish I was a property mogul James there, is looking at me very uh interestingly there's audience. a backstory
2: to this because in our previous episode <laughs> that was one of our guests pet hates no. and and oh, because, getting... and she failed it I also was like that was mine because I <laughs> failed at it as well. So now we have someone who balances it out. Okay, yeah. the here we, here we, here and you can go talk to think, me. Why? I
0: think it was because I thought I was going to fail it, <laughs> which is why I just, yeah, I just, I did, but I loved it. I loved every, like I got in there, I rolled my eyes, I sat in the back of the class, I had my arms folded, my phone in front of my face, and then I started listening and paying attention. I was like, this is great stuff all of those like easements and covenants and rules and common law and then there's the statute and it just made my head explode and then i think i'm i think we may have been buying a, a house at around about that time and i actually paid attention to the contract 130 odd pages and i was right in there so um i don't know why that was the one of the favorites but it was really useful on the flip side. The the subject that I thought I would not only excel but be congratulated for my brilliance, I barely scraped by. And names, I don't know if I should names. admit this.
2: Go, yeah, go Ready for days? it.
0: Ready, Contract
2: Oh, A and B. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: I was. My job was procurement and contracts and here i was <laughs> yeah. really struggling with contracts i think that i think
1: that kind of illuminates the gap sometimes between what we learn yes. and what we put into practice absolutely um, yeah i
0: think that's absolutely it because i wanted to break all the rules right yeah. like that yeah. was that was one of the reasons i took that subject i wanted to learn it so i could bend and bend the rules, maybe not break them, but certainly bend them. And I always had this theory about agile ways of working, which is something we do a lot in consulting and any of these large organisations are changing their kind of internal ways of working to orientate towards more agile ways. So, more, you know, faster cycles, different ways of thinking about how to produce um, value for customers. And one of the drawbacks um, in practical sense is, is the way in which we structure legal contracts because they're usually framed over a much longer period of time particularly in you know the early days of tech, multi-year, multi-million dollar large contracts where you don't see a lot of value in the early stages, you sort of wait to the end years. And then we, what we found kind of you know, um, in sort of an industry perspective is that just wasn't working as an approach. So hence the agile sort of grew in popularity as a way of working. But the contracting mechanisms haven't kept pace, mm-hmm. and so this has been a really interesting thing to explore. And certainly in Victoria, we're looking at um, you know different ways of using agile thinking to embed it into ways of structuring contracts for you know large scale transformations and IT projects.
2: And how does that how does that work in a practical sense? Uh, so can you yeah, run us through a project certainly. that you've worked on?
0: Yeah, actually, something we did for um, one of the projects that was one of the award-winning projects with um, court services and VCAT, if, if anyone knows about the online dispute resolution pilot, um, because what we wanted to do is bring in, as I said, those agile contracting me- methods and mechanisms. And so um, it requires a lot of uh, Customer-centric empathy, it requires um, working in partnerships, there's um, some agile principles and mindsets, things like, for example, we favour collaboration over you know, processes and, and contracting. Um, and so it required us to rethink the relationship we had with historically folks we would call vendors or suppliers to become Partners. And as as lawyers, I guess sometimes there's that slightly antagonistic approach to a contract. I want to win on my side. I want to advocate for my client. Um, And it sort of tends to be very inwardly focused. I think the what we were trying to do on that project in particular was really, um, look at ways of partnering better where there's a win-win for both sides. So, um, again, um, certainly I know Victorian government has actually looked at agile contracting and agile procurement as part of some of its, um, initiatives to reduce red tape, um, be able to get, you know, greater value for both the, the government side, but also their potential partners. Um, so one thing we did in very pragmatic terms was actually look at the terms and conditions in the contract, Um, we actually embedded agile principles and ways of working into the contract, um, which sounds like a very simple thing to do, but usually it's much more antagonistic. The language is antagonistic. Um, but in this sort of way of working, it was trying to be much more inclusive. So again, just little things and you know, a shout out to the team. We had some pretty amazing um, lawyers. Uh, Shireen, if you're listening, you know, that was, that was something that, you know, they um, Shereen and Beatrice, who was our procurement lead, worked really hard on trying to establish. So and when
2: you say that you embed mm-hmm. um agile ways of working agile, principles into the terms and conditions. Yes. Yep. How does that manifest itself? Do you see it in the way that it is written? Is it an approach that Sorry. guides I'm you know gonna, what's actually yep. included? This is someone who has no <laughs> background in writing terms and conditions of contracts. I so I think
0: I think it's I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble a little bit for saying this, but one of the things I found just as a bit of a pattern as much as you know the legal minds in the room would love everyone to stick to contracts. We never do in practice. Um, A lot of my background has been in program delivery and project execution. It's all about relationships mm. frankly like without you know great partners supporting mm. you doesn't actually matter what's written in the terms and conditions until something goes wrong yeah. Yeah. and so I think realistically if you start that negotiation process with you know really good intentions and with that partnership empathetic mindset that you want your partner to win as much as you want to win it totally changes the dynamic of the relationship um, there's an element of fairness that was that's there and um, an element of collaboration perhaps that we haven't seen before. So I think as much as, you know, I would love to say, yeah, we always go back to the contract. Right. <laughs> Some, sometimes, I don't even know, it takes us a while to sort of dig it out and dust it off. But um, I think it's the... The process of forming that in a collaborative way, as opposed to just handing someone a piece of paper, letting the lawyers look after it. I try and get the actual teams involved to embed and put in the content in, um, you know, the, the the schedules in the contract, for example. So mm. they're shaping the plan together. So we reduce the legal We try and use language that the teams can understand, um, so that they're actually engaged with the with the content and the information. And it certainly helped, like many many times when um, I guess people aren't quite sure what to do they they can kind of refer to something that they worked on together and kind of go from
2: there lawyers don't have a reputation for a real love of risk and <laughs> and uh i don't know if that's a product of the sort of person who comes out of law school or mm-hmm. the sort of person who's attracted to law school like a chicken and egg <laughs> yeah. kind of thing yeah so how how would you go or do you have any examples of approaching a legal team and saying we're going to actually completely turn the way that we write contracts or terms and conditions on its head, come along for the ride. Like, Can you yes. run us through an uh, example of when you've had to, how you've gone about doing that?
0: Yeah, um, James, you're going to love this one, and Isabel, you may have <laughs> heard this story, but um, I was actually I was really fortunate. Uh, I got a chance to be the head of legal ops, um, group governance, and legal ops for for NAB. So um, I can talk about this one. It's a great story. Um, some really cool sort of public facing stuff that we did, and um, there uh, was a project that we set up called Project Kaboom. Literally, that was the name <laughs> of the project, right? That's great. Isn't it awesome? And um, the idea here is that we wanted to blow up the terms and conditions for, for NAB um, credit cards. And interestingly, because what we found, you know, listening to um, bankers and our customers at the time, they no one understood it, right? It was just a whole bunch of legalese, it was 60 pages. Has any, have you looked at the terms and conditions of your credit card? Never. Let's be it, honest, no. Exactly. And, and I guess that was the thing. It was just like it was just this kind of, you know, it was it was very expensive paperweight at the time and, you know, often sort of very paper format, et cetera, et cetera, because that's part of the regulation. Um, and we just really sort of rethought about, you know, what are the ways we can literally blow up the terms and conditions and and try and create something that's going to be of value to customers, that the bankers can explain, um, that our teams understand. And um, on that particular initiative, we pull together and this is where the exciting bit happens. So we obviously had the internal lawyers who are incredible, folks with um, a background in consumer credit and law, but also folks with different backgrounds because lawyers are great thinkers. And I know perhaps um, when you're very deep in your content, such as consumer law, it can be really hard to Break away and to take those risks; hence, why it helps having others in the room to sort of bounce ideas off. Um, we also had an external um, firm who were really, really incredible. So we had um, HSF as our as our partner in that. They have a fantastic legal team, and they had a really fantastic um, sort of financial services team. Um, thank you, Martin McDonald, if you're listening, uh, and Julia. So um, the the folks that were involved had this understanding of trying to make things better. They wanted to improve financial literacy for folks who might be sort of perceived as vulnerable Australians. Um, again, this is all really important because I think it's about changing the mindset of what's possible when we put the consumer um, or the customer at the centre of what we're doing. And then we got a really exciting opportunity to work with our product teams at NAB and marketing teams and technology teams. um, And we put all of these folks into a room, process experts, you name it. And we applied a a construct called um, human-centred design. Uh, And it was this really interesting approach to um, relooking at what a contract was, how it is that we might um, effectively write a contract from the perspective of the customer, not the bank. Mm. right. So that was really that as a as, and, and I guess part of that brainchild come from from having done my law degree and looking at it and saying, okay, well, if this is a contract, who, who are the parties and how do we orientate the language? And, and so that was our focus. If we were, you know, how might we, which is one of the questions you ask in service design and human-centred design, how might we write a contract from the perspective of a customer? And, you know, to their credit, our chief general counsel and others, you know, um, head of uh, consumer product was like, yeah, let's try this. Let's see where we can go. The, the legal firms were into it. Um, all of us sort of um, we used obviously incredible experienced designers we did um, you know customer research which is part of the method Um, and we did lots of external research seeing what else was out there around terms and conditions and in the end you know we went from something that was you know 60 plus pages of really dense text heavy information into something that was I think about half the size but with pictures and diagrams and better language and clearer headings and things that was Basically, the idea there was to make it more accessible and I think we, you know, did a very... A good job, and obviously, objectively, um, probably one thing I can share is it's actually been nominated for a um, design award, which is really exciting—like really amazing yeah. in service design. Um, who who would have thunk it? You know, you can get <laughs> legal teams and and service designers and tech folks and product teams sitting in a room together, mm. really rethinking um, the way in which we you know present legal information to make it more accessible and more engaging for people. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm a credit card holder, so yeah. I want it to be easily accessible, yeah, absolutely. right? absolutely. I think you've
1: mentioned a couple of, like, key phrases there. One is about change management, which mm. we'll come back to. But human-centred design is a really interesting yes. one. And you're not our only alumni who's sort of gone on and, and, and expressed that sometimes as lawyers we can – forget who's on the other end of what yes. we're doing. Yes. Um, and so that seems to be part of that. But maybe you could just explain really simply what is human-centred design and maybe how all of us can kind of, you know, apply that framework for students.
0: Yeah. And it's such a great, great construct that you can apply it for, for really anything you do in life, right? Whether it's law or any other discipline. But the, the premise of it is about empathy, Human, for me, this is this is how I explain it. So, human-centered design for me is about empathy. It's about putting humans, people, at the center of everything that you do and think about as your first priority. So, not the technology, not the cost, not the risk, but people. And you ask yourself the question: What do people want? What's desirable? So, that's the first kind of lens that you look through. Um, the second question you learn, um, often we ask in human-centered design is: um, You know, what are we? You know, what can we afford for what level of risk? So, that's the vital lens. And the third lens is what they call a feasibility lens. Um, Traditionally, it's largely been about technology. You know, what can the technology do? Um, Because, you know, tech can't do everything, can't solve for every problem. Often we think it's the silver bullet, but it's not. Um, um, Over the years, I've actually started to amend that. And my new method is actually when I ask the feasibility question, ask about capability. So Mm -hmm. capability being people, process and tech, right? So skills that you might need, processes you might need to implement, and then the tech technology to platforms that underpin it. Um, And I guess those three things, desirability, viability, feasibility, it's about finding the balance of all of those three things, having empathy for the humans and human actors in a particular context so that you can hopefully get to a win-win for everyone Mm. by balancing those three elements.
1: Yeah, we, we have this unfortunate assumption that empathy is kind of a soft or yeah. vulnerable emotion no, instead no. of it being this really productive way to work better
0: with other people. A hundred percent. And ultimately, we have to remember that the law is there to better people, to make our lives better, to make it fairer for others, to ensure that we, you know, as a society can function with, you know, rules and frameworks that make sense and can be as fair as possible to everyone. So why why wouldn't we look at frameworks to make that kind of legal practice as fair and, and you know, um, human centric as possible? Mm-hmm. Again, you know, we might get caught up in a piece of legislation, we might get caught up in legal process, and that is important, but it's not the only thing. And I would be encouraging folks who are looking at the problem space that they're they're in at the moment, to just try it. Try and put people at the heart and at the centre. Mm-hmm. Put the people questions first, start with humans and just see. See if you get a different result. See if you can ask different questions that lead to a slightly different outcome. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's important to do that so that we don't lose focus, we don't lose perspective about what's important. Yeah,
2: There may be people listening who have been working in a particular field, it could be mm-hmm. law or otherwise, 5, 10, 15 years, and they're thinking, Well, I already do this. I already put my clients first or I put my colleagues first or whoever it is. Mm -hmm. And they might be struggling to go, well, what else do I need to consider? I'm already considering them. Can you tell me how you might come in to put a different lens on the work that they do, why they do it and what the impact is on sort of the the end user or the client?
0: Yep. So the idea here is that it's not just your client who's the only human actor, and hopefully that language sort of makes sense. The the human participant in a particular process or whatever. Um, and so when you again, th- this has a whole discipline around it. By the way, I'm, I'm probably not doing service design full justice, but the idea is that you understand um, an ecosystem and all the players in the ecosystem, all the stakeholder groups. And so what you want to understand is not just you know what's a win for your client and pushing as hard as possible, but also In the same way as you might do interest-based negotiation, right? What is also important for the other stakeholders? Where is their tension? Where is their contention tension? Where are their similarities? Um, Where are their mutual pain points that everyone, you know, wants to try and solve together? And by sort of mapping out those different perspectives, I think what it can do is not only build understanding and empathy for you know the other party but it can also help your your client get what they want right so if you can address the needs of the other party and what's important to them then hopefully that will help to uplift and again I think you know really good lawyers do that well we talk about understanding all of those things but often we do it in a way that is perhaps um, a little bit more antagonistic to try and you know do something that is going to sort of benefit maybe one party over the other but keeping in mind that if if it's not something that is, you know, particularly important to your client, maybe there is a way to to, to, for for more parties to walk out of it with more benefit. And that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing because again, even though the lawyer's duty might be to the courts, um, it's also a duty of you know ensuring a fair and equitable process. And so Mm -hmm. there is real um, you know equity I think and procedural fairness in making sure for your client there's a great outcome and also for the practice of law and the reason we do this and for people to trust it, right, we want to make sure that lawyers have those ethical duties that ensure that they are thinking about all parties. Now, I'm not saying to give things away, but I am saying to be aware of what is important to the other parties so that hopefully together you can get a better outcome.
2: Uh, the way that you describe human-centred design um, is actually something... That we framed it in terms of from the perspective of a lawyer. But in fact, this is so broad across every single industry and perhaps even interpersonally as well
0: absolutely absolutely do you
2: you ever find yourself bringing human-centered design into your private life big
0: time and I, and I, I guess I do it only because it's such a great fast method and way of thinking about it right those three questions what's desirable for humans what can I afford for what level of risk and like can the tech do it or can the Feasibility process to it. I'm, I'm struggling to think of a good kind of personal example, but um, certainly whenever I walk into a business, it's the first. Th- it's the first three questions I ask myself when I'm trying to scope a problem, um, and you know, and we talk about it from lawyers' perspectives, thinking you know maybe they're working for large law firms or in-house, but also policymakers, right? So for those who might be interested in taking that sort of government and policy path. What an awesome way to understand the policy landscape. What an mm. awesome way to really understand the needs and balance the needs of all of the parties. Um, you know, certainly something, I, you know, with the work that I'm doing at the moment, we're really interested in what the ecosystem looks like. Because in order for us to be successful, um, particularly with Privacy Sandbox, and we'll talk about deprecating third party cookies, which is a really big deal, um, in order for us to be successful, we need our entire all the partners to be successful, but um, it only it's sort of one for all, or for one type kind of thing, but it it is um, as much of a cliche as that that is, I I really firmly believe that with this kind of more connected way that we work today, exist today, live today, we want to have um, principles of sustainability. It doesn't help if one party gets everything and and there's nothing for the rest of the ecosystem. Um, So some of these design principles are really important. And again, I've applied it in a context of something as boring as reporting and information to legal design, um, uh, technology. Design obviously that's sort of it's comfort space and home home space, but it can be applied pretty much in every context. So
2: about half of the graduates from law school don't go on to practice law. Um, Aren't we
0: smart? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So there's and that is I guess uh, what is behind this podcast that there's a yeah. lot of people who are either at law school considering a either a non legal career yep. or a career. That isn't focused on working with the big commercial firm. Yep. Yep. And there's also people who do go through a career change, um, like all of us yes. will have major career yeah. changes. Yeah. So being able to apply that way of thinking to every industry. You know, every environment you find yourself in is really important.
0: Absolutely. And and this is the thing, and, and many people talk about this in terms of their own career and professional development, um, it really is up to you. As much as I would love to say that companies kind of encourage you to do it, uh, not in my experience. And I've always, every year I set aside um, a personal budget to make sure that I'm funding more and more professional development. I'm really fortunate I work for a company that does obviously fund it um, some of that, but I also invest in myself. So that's one step if you can afford to do that a really great way. Um, There's lots of really good free resources and free courses. Um, I know that IDEO.org have a fantastic free field guide. I call it my Bible of Mm -hmm. human-centred design, right? 150 pages of pure gold information, love it, really, really useful. Um, They'll take you through some case studies of of how they've applied human-centred design for really gnarly, really gnarly problems, you know, um, sustainability problems or um, drought problems. It could be sort of everything and anything. Um, And, you know, also... Um, there's some great courses in in Melbourne for those who are based here and in in Victoria like I know General Assembly run really um, Mm -hmm. cool courses on um, you know design thinking and human-centred design um, for sort of professionals and so again I would encourage everyone to to at least try these things branch out a little bit because it is absolutely applicable and what's more important is I think you'll get a lot more enjoyment about certainly I did and the people I worked with by doing what you do but in a fun way so we used to have this commitment for the project teams that I've worked on is I want everyone to come in to work to have some fun Mm. why not we spend so long there right and and again by doing different courses and being involved in you know um, different professional development opportunities just gives you a chance to I don't know try different things get outside your comfort zone again another cliche but Make it okay that you can do that, and even if you are sort of in a in a big firm, they're they're doing really great things around innovation. If you're in house, um, go and talk to teams outside the legal team, right? Go and talk to the project teams. We love talking project teams. <laughs> so come talk to us about agile. Come and talk to us about design. Um, and then for those who are thinking, of, you know. Non-practicing lawyers, I guess it's really only non-practicing to the piece of paper. It's only non-practicing, in my experience, for the people who understand what it means to be a practicing lawyer. Uh-huh. The rest of the world, they just know that you have a law degree. They don't. They don't care. They don't. They don't. It's kind of irrelevant. Um, I sort of laugh. Even often today, I'm introduced as a lawyer. I'm like, I, I'm not a lawyer. And then they just shut <laughs> me down. Like, you've got a law degree. I was Like, technically, it's, uh, you're a lawyer. <laughs> and so, you kind of have to wear that. Badge with pride, and the cool thing is, you never switch it off. I never, I can't switch off the information, the knowledge that I know yeah. having done yeah. all of great Right.
1: This, this is exactly what I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, for those students who are listening to this and sort of, you know, hearing your amazing journey and being an awe like us, um, what's your advice for them? What's your advice for current students who are thinking, I don't know how I would get to where. Madeline is. My other question is you're mentioning a lot these what we'd call human skills or some mm-hmm. people call soft mm-hmm. skills mm-hmm. that you've that you've learnt in your law degree and taken forward. So I think it's important to to note that even though you're not a practicing lawyer, your law degree equipped you with all these skills yes. that
0: you've taken forward Absolutely. with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, to the question on advice. The first thing I would say is you probably don't want my path It's exhausting and it's confused and I run around a lot. Um, What you probably want is your own path. And so, um, you know, a lot of people would would say, you know, in terms of the the sort of questions to ask yourself is what do you value in life? What's important? What interests you? Right. And my other piece, I guess, personal advice is I I always say yes and work it out later. I tell people I, I suffer from overconfidence, which is basically what's led me to be able to do a lot of these things. I don't actually know what I'm doing at the time but guess what you learn and so you know having that skill of overconfidence is really useful because if you're confident yeah you might be a bit arrogant or, or what have you but if you're overconfident well you're beyond that you just have full <laughs> commitment to your own abilities and it doesn't matter what's thrown your way.
1: I, lo- I love the idea of saying yes and working it out later yeah. because I think that applies to personal life to, exactly. to your career if you wait until you're ready yeah. You're not going to say yes. You're not going to be ready in some cases. I am not ready for any
0: of the projects I've ever done. Love it. Still not ready for it. Yeah, I I understand that. Absolutely. It's, it's, It's important. I would say this, though. I think saying yes, but also trusting your gut. Yeah. And I think that's the thing I've learned as I'm getting a bit older is is really trusting my gut to say, you know, are these people I want to work with? Is this mm. a leader that I'm actually going to trust? Mm. Um, if something like you know loyalty is important to me, so I make sure that the people that I'm working with share that sort of value system. So, again, really sit down, ask yourself what you value, what's important, um, make that decision, talk to your gut, not just all head decision, but bit of heart decision and see where it takes you. Yeah. Pretty interesting places, no doubt. So the other the other word that you've used a few times is change management. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and that may be familiar to some of our listeners, but some people might not quite understand that. We don't really have time to, to delve into the I massive know. topic of I change know. management, I but I want to touch on it and touch on how we can have better attitudes to change, particularly over the last couple of years and particularly working somewhere like Google, where you're leading change. Yes, um, Can you tell us about how we can sort of reframe change as a positive thing?
0: Oh, yeah. And such a great question, because I think anyone who's about to step out into the workforce or is already in the workforce will know another cliche but here we go change (laughs) is a constant it's the only constant um among death and taxes right so i think um and and just sort of uh, picking up on points earlier about some cool resources that folks might want to follow up on. There's this great industry um, framework around change management. It's called the ADCAR model um, developed by ProSci. And, again, if, if folks are interested, there's, there are some methods and there's some, some some methods behind the madness around change. And I think from my experience um, with, you know, helping to support the right mindset shift is, and particularly for lawyers, because all lawyers do all the time is change management. It floors me that we think that we don't do it. We absolutely do. Legislation changes all the time. Regulations change all the time. Policy changes all the time. And everyone seems kind of okay with that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's just part of the job. But when it comes to maybe sort of weathering the storm of a personal change or a professional change sort of outside of a a, a legal change, I I see different mindsets. You know, there's a new IT system that's going in or, you know, know, there's a leadership change or something. I think if, um, you know, lawyers... In my and this is going to be a bit controversial. I also think lawyers are great at managing risk. They, they, you know, it's embedded in the DNA in the sense that you're able to look at we're able to look at something and weigh up pros and cons, um, trying to get to the best best path forward. Change is a bit like that. I think there's a recognition and understanding that you know we are wired as human beings. Change again is also about human beings, right? First and foremost, before methods and processes, it's always going to be about humans, and ensuring that we have empathy for people who might be at their kind of cap of, of things that are changing. For example, it's not just the change that's happening in the workplace, um, you know, with a leadership change or a new system or new legislation change. It's also the fact that someone might be moving house. They might have, um, you know, uh, reaching a milestone or they might have had, you know, a bereavement in the family. And it's all of these personal things that sort of form together to make the person as an individual... Respond in certain ways to change. Um, in fact, we had a, had a wonderful colleague of mine, Dave at Google, who recently, um, you know, gave gave me this reminder about changes that we need to take the whole person into consideration. So, my encouraging sort of words of wisdom for any lawyer that's trying to, you know, affect change in their own organisation or understand change is really to make sure that you recognise that if you're sort of affecting change and and um, understanding the perspectives of those who you're, you're um, working with to have that empathy that they might be going through more than just the change that you're putting on their plates, and then vice versa, have the confidence to articulate if you're at your capacity for change. Mm. Look for help, look for resources, look for support, and that's okay. That's a good thing. If anything, it'll make life a heck of a lot easier for the folks who are trying to roll out the change. Right? Yeah. So. Acknowledge that, be aware of it, be honest about it. And I think, you know, with, with that honesty comes new opportunity for appreciating and, and, and really embracing whatever uncertainty and ambiguity is, is coming our way.
2: Madeline, I'm really excited about the fact that we have someone from Google here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: so so we have to ask the question. Yeah, yeah. Google is obviously, I mean, for, for so many years ahead of the game on everything. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing from your perspective in terms of legal changes on the horizon?
0: Absolutely. There are some really, like now is such a fascinating time to be, and I say Google, but really anything that's related to digital tech. I don't know if folks are aware of this, but there is a huge, huge review going on around the Privacy Act and the privacy reform. That is a massive thing at the federal level, right? So, but of course, federal, it'll have impacts for state and vice versa, right? I know this because I have a law degree. Um, And I guess, um, you know, I'm I'm really fascinated in how we are going to be defining what is privacy because we all know we don't have a right to privacy in Australia or in Mm. Victoria, it doesn't exist. And so um, the future of privacy and data and defining data and what it means, defining what is personally identifiable information and all of these concepts that are wrapped up with um, how we interact in the digital realm is really interesting and scary. We don't have the answers to a lot of these things. And um, you know, for example, what I'm working on at the moment, Privacy Sandbox, is a really incredible initiative. And so, you know, it started as a lot of these things do um, overseas. So the, the UK regulator um, brought to Google's attention that it wasn't doing, and not just Google, right, all, all of the folks in, in um, the digital, you know, big tech providers and platforms were not doing a great job with privacy, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really well publicised. And so um, Google made some commitments to uh, remove a, a technology that has been in place pretty much since the birth of the internet, right? So, 25 years we've all used it. This little thing called cookies. Mm. Don't know if people know, not the chocolate chip variety, mm. the tech variety. <laughs> it's delicious as the chocolate chip variety are. Um, but the the idea here is that for the first time ever, we're going to be removing some of the technology that sits behind tracking people with cookies across browsers. Now, again, for those who may or may not know, when you get ads that pop up. On your browser that are hopefully, hopefully accurate to what you know your interests would be. It's because some of the technologies are using um, ads. Technologies are using cookies. Now imagine what could happen if we switch that off tomorrow. Uh Which of course is the reason why Google is taking a very different approach in how it wants to to look at this. Because um, here we've got a technology again that we've been using since pretty much the early days of the internet. We are looking for other ways to introduce privacy-preserving tech that will also and, and meet all of those new privacy obligations and hopefully go a bit beyond that, right? We want to kind of do more because it's the right thing for consumers. Again, we want the ecosystem as a whole to, mm. do, to do better and do more. And so this is our opportunity um, and this is why I like the Sandbox Initiative. So what Google has done is set up um, almost like a, a testing realm. It's all public, Anyone and everyone can participate. Whether you're a policy mind, whether you're a developer, um, and I hope there are some developers on on this call. Um, whether you're in you know a digital marketing space, whether you're in a legal team who you know works closely with the digital marketing team. Right now is the time to shape the design work about how we want to shape the internet um, in a cookie-less world, as we like to say. Now I don't know about everyone else, but this is like I've never been a part of anything as big as this. Yeah. That this is not is,
2: small. No. It's,
0: Absolutely massive, yeah. And so, and, and not only is it big, it's also really scary because Google's not the only player, there's an entire ecosystem. Whatever we change is going to impact others mm. and vice versa. And so, we want to make sure that we have a channels and for everyone's voice to be heard, like the W3C, which is the World Wide Web Consortium which is like the international standards body for sort of internet technology and internet standards, um, is also looking at this really closely. So again, I don't know if folks are interested in digital technology and regulating in the digital World, But if you are, and that's for me, I think a real growth area for obvious reasons, post-COVID, it's kind of accelerated the need for some of this stuff. Now is the time to really start exploring how an ecosystem of players need to come together in order to shape not just regulation, but also technology design fascinating space Mm. really interesting it's so full of potential so full of potential and and I, I actually had a colleague of mine at Google who said something that completely changed the way I thought about privacy so I'm don't tell Google this, but I'm I'm one of those weird kind of Luddites who really are about tech, right? My phone's, you know, forever years old and, and so on and so forth, uh, which is ironic considering I do digital transformation and change management, but a story for another day. Um, but but And and so I take quite a conservative view to privacy, right? I, I try and craft a digital identity of Maddie Oldfield that is quite different to perhaps some of my um, physical sort of information. Whereas I have a colleague who said, Maddie, I just want to, I just take it all. They can have all my data because mm-hmm. the more data they have, the more accurate the ads will be. I'm actually gonna get things in return that I want. Um, take it. I've got I don't I don't really care about it. And I'd never heard anyone voice that perspective. And so for me I was like, Oh wow, this is a real Journey here where mm. you know, and maybe that is where we become as a society over time, I don't know. Maybe we become more conservative. But I think what it's about right now is getting those voices heard coming through the public forums and the public channels to shape a future that we actually want to participate in that is going to balance win-win, hopefully, the needs of of, of you know all the key stakeholders in and, and players in the ecosystem. So all of you, I would encourage you to, yeah, go go explore. I'm, you know, happy to send some links out and yeah. Yeah, have a look at Privacy Sandbox, some cool little videos. Get get your tech geek on and see what you think.
2: Well, we'll definitely yeah. get um, some resources yeah. that we can add to the show notes for awesome. this episode. Awesome, awesome. Um, there's, there's so much more to explore with you. Um, I feel like we could do multiple <laughs> episodes yeah, and maybe we need Yeah, I feel like there's a
1: two-parter
0: coming. Yeah. Absolutely. No commitments, but that's, <laughs> that's how right. I feel at this stage. I know we didn't even get a chance to talk about odr which i still think is one of the coolest things we've ever done in the yeah. legal context
2: well i think you're gonna to have to come back and do uh, another episode perhaps, on that yeah absolutely yeah, 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 yeah. Um, madeline i know you value your privacy uh, <laughs> but if there is any way um that people can look up more information about you or find some projects you've worked on uh, oh, yeah, whereabouts yeah. can people find you
0: absolutely so um oh, i do i have a um a public presence on linkedin so that's obviously a um, you know, if anyone's in the workforce, they've probably heard about it. But yes, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn if you've got questions. Um, I've, you know, put up a few um, thing, you know, projects I've worked on. For example, um, if you're interested in learning more about human-centred design, service blueprint, um, I was, we were really fortunate. Uh, we won an award uh, in 2019 for the VCAT ODR pilot. And I had an opportunity to also submit a um, journal article for the MIT Computational Law Report, which is pretty cool, right? MIT. Um, we also got a chance to speak Speak at Harvard on this topic as well at Harvard Law Schools. I mean, it's no Monash, but you know, it was it was it was good. <laughs> that you, uh, I that hear that they're you, fine. That, uh, Yeah, they're, they're okay. <laughs> they're okay. But again, it's just you know the places that you know these these types of experiences can take you are sort of endless. It's just honestly, you know, get curious, start exploring, start finding things, start going down the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole, and see where it takes you.
2: Madeline Melfield, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining Laugh After Law School. Uh-huh.
0: Thank you for having me and um, to all the listeners out there. Thanks for having to deal with the last 45 minutes, but uh, <laughs> hopefully hopefully there's some good nuggets that um, that will kind of yeah inspire you to think of life after law school a little bit differently, because I know I have. A big thanks to Madeline Oldfield from Google.
1: Life After Law School comes to you from the Faculty of Law at Monash University. For law courses, to partner with us, or more opportunities, head to monash.edu forward slash
2: law.